morning. <clears throat> well, it's been it's been a good morning so far. If you missed equipping hour this morning, you missed a blessing. Um, as we heard about the flood and some of the amazing truths that go along with the flood. Um, and the fact, the very first thing that Paul was talking about this morning was the reason that academia, the world, fights against the flood narrative so much is because it is a clear explanation, a, a clear proclamation of the judgment of God. And um, that's something that we really need to remember. We need to remember that his judgment is real and it's true. And it is coming again. And um, so as we look at, we're going to be in Galatians again this morning. As we look at that and we look at the law, the law is also um, similar to that. It, it, is a, it is a declaration of the judgment of God as well. So if you would, turn to Galatians chapter 3. While you turn there, I'll, I'll go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you, God, for this day. I thank you for this gathering of believers, gathering of your people, Lord, to hear the word of God taught, to come together in song and worship you, to come together in fellowship in your name, to take communion together. And Lord, just as we do all of these things, I pray, God, that we would truly give glory to you in our hearts. And as I go into this word, Lord, as we as we bring this out, God, I pray that you would just give me the power of your Holy Spirit to preach this message. Because without him, this is this is worthless. Without you intervening in hearts, nothing will happen without the Holy Spirit moving on this place. Nothing will change. And God, I pray that we would have our hearts, our minds focused, changed, turned to Christ this morning. If there's any here who do not believe, Lord, I pray, God, that right now you would work in their heart to give them ears to hear. That you would cause them to be able to pay attention to these spiritual things so that they could see. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to start in verse 19, chapter Galatians 3, verse 19. Kind of a, a review of the last time I preached. The first part of this chapter, to sum it up, basically we heard that a man who tries to receive salvation by the law, by keeping the law, by doing his own thing, by his own righteousness is cursed. We've found out that the law can absolutely not justify anybody. It is powerless in that area. It cannot justify anybody. It can only condemn. That's what the law does. It condemns. We, we saw that God made the covenant with Abraham before the law was given. So the covenant was there. The law was not part of the first covenant that God made with Abraham. So the, the, the promises of God to his creation, to his people, occurred before the law. 
And then we also heard how Jesus fulfilled and kept the law perfectly. And the inheritance is in Abraham's seed, which is Christ. So we see all of that stuff. And then it's like Paul comes to this point in verse 19. Well, if the law isn't any good for any of that, then what is its purpose? So that's where we'll start right here in verse 19. It says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hands of a mediator. I'm going to go ahead and read all the way down through 25. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there would have been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confirmed all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So what purpose then does the law serve? It's like the question, and and Paul is anticipating the questions that will come. And this is highly true when dealing with a legalistic mindset. So if the law doesn't save, what good is it? Spurgeon said this. He said, will you say that because iron cannot be eaten, therefore therefore iron is not useful? And because gold cannot be the food of man, will you therefore cast gold away and call it worthless dross? Just because it's not used for what you think it's used for does not mean it's worthless. Okay, and that's what we want to see. But but I've seen this. I've seen it happen, not with the law of Moses necessarily, but with the mind of a legalist. Matter of fact, the first time I was ever faced with with questions of my faith, really, I had um, I had been living a false. I was a false convert to Christ living in a very legalistic way, thought that the church that I was in was the only way to get to heaven. Um, and it was through the church, not through Christ. I had all these things. I had these thoughts. And if you remember when I started Galatians, Galatians was the first full book of the Bible that I read where God first opened, started to open my eyes to truth. But when I was at, the, the way this happened was, I was at a meeting in this church and there were questions, there was all this stuff going on. I was 22, maybe 23 years old when it happened. And I didn't know anything about biblical truth, really. I thought I was an expert. Anybody ever been there? I hope I'm not there now. I don't think I'm an expert. So, But I thought I, I, thought I was well-educated in the Bible. Why? I had spent my entire life in church, rarely missed a service, Wednesday night, Sunday morning, we were there. My dad was a preacher. We talked about scriptures at home. We, I was discipled in that way. And I knew a lot of verses. 
I didn't know a lot of context. But we were at that meeting, and um, there was a lot of things being said. And you guys know Ronnie. That was actually the meeting where Ronnie was resigning as an elder in that church. And I didn't even, I barely knew him at the time. But I said, I have a question. And I was new. I, I knew, I didn't hardly know anybody there. I'd been going there for two or three months after I moved down to Stratford. I said, we all agree we're saved by grace, right? And everybody's just like, you hear this kind of murmuring, you know, whenever like, did he really just say that? Now, here's the thing. I would have said I was saved by grace, but I, w- I did not believe I was saved by grace. I believed I was saved by grace plus works, but I would have said we were saved by grace. Well, they, I was closer than they were. They did not, they would not have ever even said that. But what happened was the guy that was sitting in front of me turned around and he said, Justin, if you commit fornication, are you going to heaven? And I was like, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I was just caught off guard. I didn't know what to say on that. Um, and then he said, so if you, if all of these things that we do, all of these works, works for God aren't for salvation, then what's the point of doing them? And again, I was just kind of like, I, 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 I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I was just caught completely off guard. I didn't know how to answer that question. But looking at his attitude now, I can see so clearly why Paul anticipates this question. Well, what good is the law then? If it's not for salvation, what good is it? Well, what is the good of doing any good things for, for God if it's not to earn our salvation? What's the point? And there was actually another guy there that said, well, it's because of the love for God. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And I'm really glad I didn't know the answers at the time because, or I hadn't been taught some kind of answer for that because that's what caused me to go search for the answers myself. And that's when I read through the book of Galatians and God started to open my eyes and doors and all kinds of things. But, but looking at his attitude, and, and I think this is a common thing, and this is not just in legalistic churches. My fear is that even in biblical evangelical churches, it's easy for us to gather this attitude. It's easy for us to try to earn favor with God. And that cannot be done. You're not good enough and you're never going to be good enough to earn favor with God. You can earn favor with your boss. You can earn favor with your parents. Why? Because they're not that much higher than you. But with God, you, you, it can't be done. But that's the attitude that we have here. So the law, it's not for salvation. But that does not mean that it doesn't have a purpose. And we see that right here. We see two reasons for the law right here in verse 19. The first is because of transgressions. And the second is because of the seed. So if you turn over to Romans 5.20... We, we find out the way that's worded there, the, the law actually came in 
to produce transgressions. Romans 5.20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So the law entered in that sin might abound. If you have an ESV, it actually says the law came in to increase the trespass. It's kind of like a doctor. If you go to the doctor and you have, you're skeptic about him, and you're in your heart, you don't really trust this doctor, that is made extremely manifest. That comes out very clearly if he writes you a prescription and you say, Nah, I'm going to throw that prescription in the trash, right? That shows, that manifests, that brings it to light, your distrust of the doctor, right? It, it magnifies, if you will, the distrust in your heart. Piper said it this way, by prescribing the obedience of faith, the law turns the hidden sin of distrust and rebellion into the open transgression of disobedience. What the law does is it has this ability that we have this distrust in our heart. We have this deceitful, wicked heart, right? This heart of stone. And we're talking about an unbeliever here. It has the purpose. So the law comes and you put the law as a mirror in front of the person and you realize, wow. It, it manifests the distrust, the dishonesty in our heart. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Right? That's one of the Ten Commandments. Well, if it didn't say, you know in your heart when you're young that lying's wrong. Anybody that's raised children know this. They, they have a, it's a conscience. It's a, it's a born with God's knowledge on the heart to know when something's wrong. But it's not completely manifested. It's not completely revealed until it's written. Does that make sense? So, so in other words, you have this feeling that it's wrong to lie. But then when you're put with God's law that says, thou shalt not lie. Pretty clear. Don't lie. Don't bear false witness. And then you do it again anyway. That's like throwing the prescription away. Saying, I know what you said, God. But I don't care. That's the purpose of the law. It's going to reveal that open. It's openly going to reveal the rebellion that is in our heart. But it goes further. It goes further than this. The law also causes rebellion and sinful nature in our heart. Flip over. Stay in Romans. Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, verse 5, look what this says. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Did you catch that? When we were in the flesh, this is unbelievers we're talking about here. The sinful passions, where did they come from? They were aroused by the law. But the law comes from God. The law is good. The law is given by God Himself. 
But this says it arouses sinful passions. Did it create them? No. No, they were already there in our hearts. And when it's placed in front of us, um, it arouses that passion. Read verse 6. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the law. We're now released from that law. Not that we're released from the requirements of the law. Those requirements don't disappear. But they have to be fulfilled. But we are now released from the rebellious nature that the law arouses in the unregenerate. Apart from the Holy Spirit, our hearts are utterly self-centered. Even with... The Holy Spirit, I think you would probably agree with me. If you examine your heart, you will find that it is very self-centered. And we're fighting against that. And the Holy Spirit gives us power to overcome that and gives us power to put our thoughts on God first and then others second. But apart from the Holy Spirit, we are a selfish being. I don't think anybody's going to deny that. You can, you can gauge this in our culture in a lot of different ways. One way you can gauge it right now um, in this political climate is by watching the voting records and the, the, even the presidential race and all of those things that are going on. The only thing, the main thing that you hear about for anybody on any kind of presidential thing is, how's this going to help me? Not what's good for our country, not what's good for our children and our children's children coming up, but what am I going to get out of this right now? And it, that goes from the presidential deal all the way down to your little county, local races. Are you going to help me? We're selfish. We're selfish people. And when that, when such a heart sees, when our selfish heart gets called into question and criticized by the authority of the law, it seeks all the more furiously to defend itself. That's what we do. That's what the heart does. It is a, so the law, the, the law forces this. It forces the heart to take a side. We would love to be fence riders. The, the wicked man in his depravity would love to sit on the fence and look good to the good side and look, and then be able to jump over here and sin and party on to the bad side. We would love to do that. What the law does when it comes, it forces that wickedness to choose. It forces it and it reveals which side of that fence you're going to be on. You can't deny it. And this is why I like the, the way of the master method we do evangelism. Because it uses the law as this mirror of righteousness. Oh, so you think, and, and you always start out, every man will declare his own goodness. So you think you're a good person. Oh yeah, I'm a good guy. He's saying that, he's sitting on the fence. He's got this side all shined up, so everybody over here thinks he's a good guy. And you say, well, how many lies have you told? Well, everybody tells lies. Keeping that, he's going to, his, that wicked heart will, will defend it as far as you can. 
until you, you continue to reveal that law. And at some point, you'll hit that one, that, one that, they, that just penetrates the heart. And then they're faced with a choice. They're either gonna, God's either going to work through them and they're going to repent and get off the fence on one side. Or they're going to say, you know what? I love my sin too much. I'm going to stay over here. And that's, that's effective evangelism when you can get somebody to get off the fence. You can get them to quit acting like a good person. You can make them realize you're not a good person. And then what happens from then on is God. God can go pursue them. He, that, that is in his hands. But the other thing is, even as a believer, as we profess to be believers, we're called to examine our faith. The law can be a barometer of that faith. How do you react to the law? How do you react when somebody says, well, you really should have God in front of everything? How do you react when somebody says, you really have to honor your mother and father, even if you don't deserve it? You know, those things are brought forth, or, or just sin in general is, is brought to you. What is your reaction? Listen, I think the way you're handling that business deal isn't exactly upfront and honest. How do you react to that? How do you react to you kind of treated those people with disrespect? When those things are brought to us as believers, our reaction can be a great indicator of where we are in our walk with Christ. It can also be an indicator if you truly are in Christ or not. Because we know in the end, there's going to be many that profess to be Christians that aren't. And so in the face of God's word, how do you react? Do you defend yourself? And listen, I'll say this. In this case, if somebody confronts you with sin, most people don't immediately just thank them and... Although I believe that would be the correct attitude, sometimes it takes a little time. But what is your ultimate reaction when confronted with sin? Do you justify it? We become, we become very good at justifying our little pet sins, or maybe even our major sins. Or maybe our little pet sins become major sins. It starts out pretty innocent, and pretty soon it's a need. Do we justify it? Or do we repent? What about authority in general? What is, our, what is our attitude towards those that have been placed in authority over us? Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a police. Maybe it's the government. And I'm not saying you have to like it. And I'm not saying it's always righteous. But what is your position when it comes to authority? Do you have a problem with authority? Maybe you need to examine that. And then we see the second reason for the law here. So the first was for transgressions. It brought it. So back over in Galatians. It says it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So the second reason, and it's given again in verse 22 
It is the seed. And if you remember from the last time, that seed is one. It's not seeds as in many. It is seed as in one, which is Christ. So the law has made a way. It has paved the way. It has shown the ultimate need for redemption. It's, it's shown the ultimate need for a Savior, for Christ. In verse 21, it says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. I love how Paul, is. He's a lot of his writing is anticipating. He knows there's going to be people that are asking these questions. He knows these questions and these comments are going to come that is against what he's saying. So he gets out in front of them. And here in 21, he says, Is then the... Is, is then the promises, is it against the promises of God? Certainly not. He says, if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. And we know it's impossible for life to come from the law. That's true of the law of Moses. That's true of any other works-based righteousness which man can come up with. And man has come up with a lot of them, a lot of different ways. And just for the record here, the works slash law, he's talking about the law of Moses mostly here. But when I'm talking about works-based righteousness, that is anything that is performed or obeyed or followed out by man. If it requires your action, it is law. So if you say you have to do this to be saved, that has become law for you to be saved. That includes all good works. Okay, so if you have, if you, if in your salvation plan, if in your salvation, if the way that you are saved in your mind includes anything other than faith in Christ, you have become a legalist. And that's very important to understand because much of the legalistic religions out there do this with biblical principles. Things like baptism. Well, if you haven't been baptized, you can't be saved. Hmm. Really? Is that true? Is that true for everybody or just us now? And then what about the baptism? And I know this, I know this very personally because I was one of the guys saying that. What about the baptism? And what I really meant was if you hadn't been baptized by one of our guys, you can't be saved because most of the people I would talk to about this had been baptized. But that's not what the scripture teaches. What about prayer? Does prayer save you? You prayed the sinner's prayer. Did that save you? We, we talk about regenerational baptism all the time and how that is not of God. But many, many denominations, many, many churches today, this morning, will have a regenerational prayer. If you come up here and you pray this sinner's prayer, you're saved. No, you're not. You're not saved because you prayed a prayer You're not saved because you were baptized. You're not saved because you have taken communion. Those are all great things. Those are all biblical mandates. Those are all things that we should do. Matter of fact, if you are refusing any of those things, I would suggest you're not saved too. But you're not saved because of them. 
You must have faith in Christ and him alone. The seed which is one. That's where the promises that were made to Abraham come from, is through Christ and him alone. Not through any of the works that he has you to do afterwards. He's going to have you do those works. And those are works. Baptism. It's an obedience to God's call. That is a work for Christ. It is a declaration of the grace of Jesus Christ on your life. And it is a very, very good thing. A very necessary thing. Very necessary. You hear what I said there? It's a very necessary thing. But not for salvation. Remember what we talked about? Just because we can't eat gold doesn't make it worthless. Baptism is not for salvation. Is it necessary? Absolutely. It helped me so much when I learned the difference between salvation and sanctification. Because I used to, because I was the guy. Well, if baptism doesn't save you, why even do it? You don't even believe in baptism. And that's what I'm usually accused of. Well, you don't even believe in baptism then. Really? I still baptize people. I was baptized, immersed in water. Why do I not? Why would you say I don't believe it? Because I don't believe it's for salvation. But it is necessary for sanctification, the separating, the beginning of a walk with Christ, the beginning of a discipleship. And I would even suggest to you that you will be greatly hindered in your walk with Christ until you have been baptized. I think it will slow down the process. Why? Because it's the first thing he commands us to do. That doesn't mean it's for salvation, though. That means it is for sanctification. The same way with prayer. If you're not praying, you're probably not saved. If you're praying more, you're probably drawing closer to God. Well, if prayer, if that prayer isn't for salvation, why do I do it? It's for sanctification. It's for an understanding in your own heart. It's for a communication now with a God that you are no longer separated from. There's lots of reasons for prayer. Prayer isn't one that people have as much trouble with. They can see prayer as a reason for things other than salvation, but not baptism. And communion, you kind of get in between. And there's many other lists. I mean, there's lots of other things that people would require of you in order to be saved that are necessary good things that aren't for salvation. And what Paul's saying here is it is impossible for anything other than Christ to save you. But the law, it's not against the promises of God. Look at verse 22. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the law has also demonstrated even more so the need of a savior. That's what it does. It magnifies Christ. It magnifies what he did. It magnifies the need for him. The need was already there before the law was given. The need was there as soon as Adam partook of that fruit. And God cursed Adam and God cursed the earth and the need was immediate right then. Nobody would be saved from that point all the way until the end of the age apart from Christ. It's not going to happen. The need was there, but the law comes in and it magnifies the need. It shows you how much you need Christ. It also magnifies Christ in this way. Try to keep the law. 
Try it for a day. Try it for a second. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Has anybody ever done that? Ronnie asked that one time in the prison. Anybody ever done that for even a minute? A bunch of hands went up. He's going. <laughs> it was kind of awkward and he rebuked them. Uh, but no, you have with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. No, you haven't. Why? Because this body has not been redeemed. I, I do believe that in eternity, one of the glories that we're going to have is we're going to be able to worship the father. With all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. All the time. And we're not going to have to fight against this world. We're not going to have to fight against this sinful nature that was, is still somewhat in our flesh. And we're going to be able to just worship Him without distractions. That is going to be glorious. But on this earth, we can't even do it for a second. We can't even do it for a minute. And Christ did it the entire time he walked in the flesh. He did it in the flesh. Even when he was hungry. Even when he was fasting for 40 days. And Satan comes and tempted him. If I'm that hungry, I'm going to have a hard time focusing on anything other than, man, I've got to get something to eat. I'll have that in an hour. Right? You guys are probably having that now. You're, some of you are not listening to me because you're thinking about the meal that's back there. Uh, you're laughing because it's true. But we can't do it. But Jesus, he did it perfectly. And that magnifies him. That magnifies who he is as God the Son. And it is an amazing thing to see that. Adam was in need of a savior. Abraham was in need of a savior. And that's why the promise was made to him, which is Christ. Verse 21 shows us it is impossible to receive life from the law. Verse 22 shows us how to receive life. And it's through the promise of God, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 23. But before faith came... We were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. And this verse is, this verse is an interesting verse. Reading it many times, I think, I think I had it misinterpreted. And it's been, it's been applied in two different ways and the commentators um, have actually there's some disagreement on this. And so I want to I want to kind of give you both sides of this so that so that you'll know that it's there. And, I, and in a way, I think it might even be able to apply both ways. But when it says um, that it's kept us under guard, one way that it's looked at is that the law kept Israel separate, set apart from the rest of the world while they waited on the Messiah. And that's certainly true. It did that. The law definitely kept Israel before Christ came. They were a nation set apart, and it was largely because of the law. And the law has done other things as well. It has kept them um, healthy in cases. It's kept them 
um, prosperous in ways. Because just following those biblical principles, and I would suggest to you today, it can do the same for us. That doesn't mean we're doing it for salvation, but there's wisdom in it. It was given by God. It was written on stone, right? So it's not like we should just throw it out. Can we gain wisdom from the law? Are, are some of the dietary laws, even though they're done away with, even though Peter made that clear, does that mean it's not better for you? It probably does. I was talking to Paul the other day. He was talking about fam- uh, plagues and things like that in his class. And I think it was the yellow plague. Um, and this was well after Christ, but the, the yellow plague came through. And I think the Jews were getting blamed for starting it. And the reason was none of them were getting it. This was before we understood a lot of things about bacteria and, you know, what causes sickness and all the microscopic organisms that cause this stuff. But it turns out the reason they weren't getting sick is because they were washing their hands before they eat with running water. And it came from the law. All they, and they had no idea. They didn't know. They were just following God's, they were just obeying what God told them. So in a way, the law has kept them. And it kept them separate, set apart, so that Christ could come. And they would, and it kept them, it also kept the records well. So there was all of this, and it was there for us now because of the way that they were sanctified as a people. So that's partly true. They were preserved in, a, in some measure. Now, if you go through and read the Old Testament, they weren't preserved completely. But they were preserved in some measure from idolatries and impieties of the world so that Christ could come and it would, it would be there. I mean, the, the record would be there. But there's also another way that this can be applied, and I think it applies rather well. And that is that the law actually keeps us under guard. The way that Paul was kept under guard by the Roman soldier. When it says it keeps us under guard, it wasn't necessarily a protection. Although, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like looking at somebody in jail. Sometimes people are arrested and put in jail to protect them from the mob, right? Especially when you look through history. Until we can find out if this person is really innocent or guilty or whatever, the safest place for them is in prison because the outside world can't get to them. And at the same time, they're kept under guard, incarcerated, right? And it's almost like that you can apply this both ways that way. But the law kept, and it it will do this to us now. It does this to any unbeliever. It keeps us under guard. That is, it keeps us shut up. The law... You used us as criminals locked up waiting for someone to set us free. And that's where we are apart from Christ. And that's what it does apart from Christ. And I don't know who's sitting here today that might be locked up by the law, that might be sitting condemned under God's judgment because you have violated His law. You've got to remember, He created you. And everything else. And so he gets to make the rules. And whether you like them or not, that's what you're faced with. And whether I I heard um, ah, it was a clip, I think, on Wretched Radio or something. But it was an atheist saying, 
If this is all true, I wouldn't want to go to heaven anyway because that guy's so immoral. Hmm. It's interesting. Wonder where you get your morality from. How do you define immoral? Well, he gets to make the rules. He created you. He created everything else. And just because you don't understand why it is doesn't mean it's not right. And I can assure you that it is right and it's holy. And there's things that we don't understand because it's so much higher than us. But he gets to make the rules. And then you're sitting under him and the law comes in and it says you're condemned. It says you're sitting under judgment. It says you are guilty. It has you locked up like a criminal waiting for someone to come redeem you. And here's the good news. In verse 24, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we must be justified by faith. That one who you are waiting for is here. He has come. He has done all that is needed to set you free from this condemnation. You just have to look to him. Look to Christ Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be, the chains will truly come off. And you will be no longer bound in a prison. You will be no longer bound by chains. You will be no longer sitting under that condemnation. You will come to Christ. It's our schoolmaster. It's our teacher. It magnifies our sin. It magnifies and reveals our rebellious heart. It suppresses us and reminds us over and over again, you cannot do it. That's what the law does. I remember, I remember being raised, I, I, was, I had a standard that I wanted to live to. I had been taught that this is how you should live unto Christ. And I had this standard. And I was going to do it. I was going to live up to this standard and I realized I couldn't so what I do I lowered the standard a little bit well maybe I can do it this way and I couldn't and I lowered the standard some more and pretty soon it became futile it became a operation of failure And so what I do then, I was, I was kind of like on the fence. I had one side polished up pretty good and the other side. But I stayed on the fence somewhat because I wanted to still look good to a lot of other people. But I've, I dropped the standard. I said, I can't do it and I'm going to live on. And that's what I did. And I think probably there's a lot of people in here that can relate to that. I said, party on. Might as well have fun. I can still look good to all these people anyway. I got it all figured out. And then a guy asked me, if you commit fornication, are you going to heaven? I don't know. I think so. hope so. I don't know. Never thought about it, really. He was an unbeliever, legalist, and he didn't realize he confronted this wretched sinner with the law, and it caused me, praise God for this. God used, he can use anybody in salvation. I had never thought about this until just now. God used an unbelieving sinner to confront me with the law so that my heart would be changed. 
That's incredible. And he's maybe using this guy, this poor lump of clay, to confront you with the law so that you could be released. Or he may be using this Word of God that's sitting before you to convict your believing heart that you need to change, that you need to take some steps towards Christ. Verse 25, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We do not need the tutor anymore. Why? We have Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. Does that mean we can't use the law as a guide? No, absolutely you still can. And you can definitely use it as a tutor to those who need it. But for us, we have the Holy Spirit to convict us. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us now. You should not have to have a written law saying you need to put aside a day and go to church on Sunday. The Holy Spirit should be convicting you to do that. You shouldn't have to have a written law. Here's commandment number 15 or whatever it is saying to love your neighbor as yourself. That should be natural to the Christian. And if it's not, if it's a forced thing, like, well, I only do it if it's right, then maybe you need to examine that as well. We are no longer under that tutor. We're no longer under that schoolmaster. We now have Christ. We have the Holy Spirit to teach us as we go and to guide us as we go. So in summary... The two purpose of the law in this text are first, to shut up the world under sin and increase trespasses. Increase trespasses. Your heart will rebel against it. And second, to see to it that the inheritance will come to and through the promised seed, which is Jesus Christ. No other way. And so the question I'll leave you with, and then we'll we'll go into communion, is where are you? How do you react to the law? Does it stir up rebellion in you? Does it cause hostility towards its requirements? Or have you recognized and submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you have... If you have recognized and submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a gift from Him. And you, the requirements of the law should no longer pray you. Not one part of it was left undone. And that's the glorious thing. When you look at the law and you try to do it, you will fail. You will fail every time and you will fail miserably. But when you are in Christ... And you've been covered by His blood. And you've been immersed in His righteousness. There is not one part of that law that can condemn you. Not at all. But remember this. There is no middle ground. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you, Lord. What an amazing thing. Uh, What an amazing testimony that you've given me of your grace. And here it is, 17 years later, and you're still showing me ways that you worked in my life that I didn't even know. And then there's times when I still don't have the trust in you like I should. How amazingly ignorant is that of me? You brought me here. You brought me to Christ. And I just want to trust you, Lord, that you will keep me. And I know you will. I know you say in your word, but reveal it in my heart. God, give us a peace Apart from the law, give us a peace in the one who fulfilled the law and the true seed, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.